Good morning, Redeemer Alain. Are we cold? Good morning, Redeemer Alain. Um, it's a joy, really a joy and uh, a privilege for me to be with you again uh, this morning. I remember the last time I was here was in 2019, uh, pre-COVID. Uh, but it's interesting to see that uh, regardless of COVID, regardless of transitions, that it's a natural thing in UAE, that God continues to sustain you as a church. Uh, God continues to uh, make his name known through your work and ministry in, in our lane. And, and we are thankful to God for that. Um, as, as Pastor John mentioned, that I have the privilege of being here with my wife and my two kids. Uh, Judson is four years old and Candace is three. Um, yeah, you can hear Judson's voice. Um, well, really, we are thankful to be here. Thanks to Pastor John. Uh, thanks to Pastor Luke, who is somewhere uh, here. And, and, and to you all, to you all, we don't take this opportunity for granted. Um, and we, I trust that as we open God's word together this morning, that he is going to speak to our heart. Uh, he's going to speak to us. He's going to uh, teach us what we do not know. And as, as a theme of our, of our preaching says, the good news that the good news will be new to you. Uh, and if you are not a follower of Christ, that you would see what this good news is. Uh, before we jump into our text, I will quickly read Isaiah 61 for us. Then I will pray again, and, and we, will, we will look at the text together. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah 61, uh, or you could follow along in the screen. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress, headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I would faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. 
Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring of the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with a garment of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it, sprout, in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let us pray. Father, you are a good God. You, you are a portion. You are a lot. You have, you have caused line to fall in pleasant places for us because of what Christ has done. You have shown us mercy even when we do not deserve. You have reached out to us in the depth of our, of our sin and brought us back to life. What an amazing God you are. We pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would please, by your grace, by your mercy, speak to our hearts, that we will not just be those who hear, but I would desire to, to do the work that you have committed into our hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. If I ask you, uh, Redeemer Alain, why you are here this morning, what would be your response? Why, why are you here? Are you able to answer that question? Perhaps it's your first time of being here uh, or not. Or, or maybe someone has invited you, a friend, a colleague, a family member has invited you here today. But have you taken time while you are even seated here to ask yourself, why am I here? I think this is an important question for every one of us as believers to be able to answer. And I'm hoping that as we look at our text this morning, that we will be able to answer that question genuinely. Or maybe you, have been, you, are, you are here because you are going through a season in your life, you are going through a difficult time in your life where you've been told that when you come to church, that God is going to make that burden easy for you. Or you've been told that he is a healer if you are someone who is sick. Or you are looking for a job and you've, you, you've, been, you've been told that when you come and pray, that God is going to hear you and you're going to get that job you desire. Is that the good news you are hoping for? Let me promise you something. But that, that's true for who God is. He is a God who cares for us. But he is a God who cares for not just our physical needs. He is a God who more than what you may be going through cares for you, but he cares for your spiritual need more. He is a God who wants to see your heart transformed. And that is how our text today is, is very crucial. Our text is it's so important for a couple of reasons. If we look at the New Testament, we will see that this is the first passage Jesus read as he begins his ministry. 
is a text that reminds us, that shows us what the good news is. And I hope that's what you are hoping to hear today. We are recipients of the good news of Christ through this text. Salvation is here today. As we look at our text, we see one of the verses that says, the, the, the year of the Lord's favor. Today is the day of the Lord's favor for you. And as we look at Isaiah 61, we see how God, how God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks prophetically about the Messiah that is to come. About the Messiah that is going to bring the good news. And not only is the text devoted to the Messiah, but it's also devoted to the kingdom the Messiah is coming to establish. As I mentioned, this, this chapter, this chapter in the book of Isaiah is often titled the year of the Lord's favor. A good reminder to God's people back in the Old Testament that he is, he is God who cares for them. He is God who cares for them. You see, when you look at Leviticus chapter 25, if you have time after service, I would encourage you to read it. You see that God was already preparing his people for what we are going to see in Isaiah 51. It is recorded that every 50th year in the life of Israel nation, there's going to be what we call the reset. Or what I call the reset. God is going to press the reset button in which the whole Israel is going to go back to original state of what God has intended for them to, to be. That is when all debt will be canceled. That is when those who have given their, their properties as, as, as a collateral to, to, to lend money, the properties will be returned to the original owners. The captives will be set free. Those in prison will be free. It was declared the year of the Lord's jubilee, favors, which is centered around God's goodness to his people, around his salvation, around his restoration, around his redemption to his people. And more than that, it is a pointer, Leviticus 25 is a pointer to Isaiah 61, because what we begin to see in Isaiah 61 is that Israel would not have to go through the 50th year of reset. They are going to be enjoying a permanent reset through Christ. The anointed one. Right? But we also know, as you and I are seated here today, that Jesus did not only come for the people of the time of the Old Testament. He has come for us. He came for the people of the time of the apostles and for you and I on this side of the border. That is what Christ has come to do. If you look at the, the, the people during the time of Jesus, in anticipation for the coming of Christ, they really struggled to accept this message that the Messiah is going to suffer. The picture they have in their head when they read Isaiah 60 and 61, is that this God is going to establish himself and the whole world will gather and he will rule in power and splendor. That is the picture they have. The great king. 
But they failed to look at the other part of the prophecies. They entirely overlooked the prophecies that says that he would die for his people. He would, he would be despised. He would be beaten. He would be mocked. He will be wounded for our transgression and he will be bruised for our iniquities. They didn't understand that part. But Jesus did. He understood it. He understood that his first coming, he wasn't coming just to reign and rule. At least not, at the, not, not by the way the people of his time understood it to mean. But he was coming to die for his people. He was coming to lay down his life for his people. He became the righteousness the people failed to be. If you turn to chapter 56 of Isaiah, you will see that God had, you know, had commanded his people to keep justice and, and do righteousness. And the same thing when you look at verse 56 to 59, we see that they failed again. They failed to uphold and be the righteousness God wants them to be. God wants them to faithfully demonstrate his character. But they failed. And in Isaiah 60, 21, God promises that your people shall be righteous. And then we continue to ask the question, if the people who we are expected to be righteous continues to fail God, how is this righteousness really going to happen? And that's what we look at in, verse six, in chapter 61. The fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 61 must happen for God's people to be righteous. For you and I to be seated here, the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 must happen. Because God himself is going to step in to do what the people cannot do for themselves. So if you are taking note, uh, we, we have, have what we call a three-point sermon. But really our time will be spent more in the first, uh, first point. So if you are keeping track and you feel like, when am I going to get to the second point? Don't worry. It's, it, the, the, the second and the third point will be a little bit shorter. But we'll spend a, a chunk of our time in the first point because the first point helps us to see what the meat of the text is. So if you are taking note, I'm going to give us a big idea, then I will list out the three points. The big idea of our text is we respond in joyful worship and praise because of the restorative hope the good news has brought for us. We respond in joyful worship and praise because of the hope, because of the restorative hope the good news has brought for us. Now, our first point under that main point is Jesus is the bearer of the good news as well as the good in the news. I will take that again. Jesus is the bearer of the good news as well as the good in the news. And we'll see this from verse 1 to 3. In verse 1 to 3, we'll see that how God will fulfill his promises through Jesus. It's God's plan that is mediated by the Spirit regarding who? The anointed one.
I must mention something here that is very important in verse 1. If you are looking for another proof text to speak about Trinity, that is your text. We see the function of both the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Trinity fully at display. But that today we are not preaching on Trinity. We are in Isaiah 61. So as we look at the first point, one crucial question we want to answer is, who is this anointed one? Let's not forget, Isaiah is a prophetic book that happened years before Jesus was born. So who is this anointed one that the author of the text is speaking about? On whom does this prophecy hinge on? Who is the subject matter of this prophecy? And I think even when you take time to read the book of Isaiah, or the, 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 the prophet's you know, prophecy, you want to, we want to always ask that question. Isaiah is 66 chapters. But as you read through, it's quite tricky that you want to be able to track who is speaking at what time. And that's the question we want to answer as we look at, the, as we look at you know, our first point here. The question of who is speaking is, at least we'll see the clue. First clue we'll see there is that this person is anointed. Three times we see the word me used. Right? The personal pronoun me in verse 1. We see that the Spirit of God is upon this person. We see that the, the Lord himself has anointed this person. And we see that the Lord has sent this person. That's what we see. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me. But as I mentioned, one good giveaway for us here is what we'll see. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me. So you see, the individual in verse 1 knows God personally. More than, more than what we could understand, this person seems to know God deeper. The, the Spirit of God himself has anointed me. He is the sovereign servant. You see, for the life of the people of Israel, the idea of being anointed isn't a new thing to them. They understand the first two kings of, of Israel were anointed. As we, if we read in 1 Samuel, Saul and David, they were blessed with with the Spirit's anointing, the Spirit's ministry. They were anointed by prophet Samuel with oil. And similarly, as we see in Isaiah 61, this person is also anointed. The person whom the Spirit is upon is anointed. But what makes the difference here is the Lord anointing himself. The Lord anoints him to be the king. God anoints him. That's, our, that's, our, that's an important clue because as we look further, 
we will see what how this ties together. If you, if you, I will read this passage, but if you, if you can open it, feel free to. Isaiah 11, 1 to 2a says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my son delight, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. So what we are getting at here is that this individual is both the servant king and the, the, the prophet Isaiah spoke much about. He is also the suffering king, the sovereign servant whom we see in the book of Isaiah. If you look at within the context of, of our text, he is the divine warrior. We see that in chapter 59. But as New Testament readers, we know him. He is Christ. He is Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. He is the one Isaiah prophesied about. You see, the Greek equivalent word for the word uh, Messiah is Christus. Christ, which means anointed one. So to, the, to answer the question of who is being prophesied about here, it is Jesus Christ. Plain, simple. He is the one who will bring salvation to his people. He is the bearer of the good news and the good in the news. He is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And how else do we know this? Because we see, as I mentioned in Luke chapter 4, Jesus at what happened to be his first public reading when he visited the synagogue. And as they handed him the scroll to read, he rolled up the scroll and found the same place of Isaiah 61, where the same word is written. And you read this in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 to 19. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you read further to verse 20 to 21, it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Christ is the anointed one prophesied about in Isaiah 61. I am the one. I am the servant king who is the servant of all servants. I am the ruler of all. I am the anointed one. And for Jesus to make this claim, you must understand that this is a blasphemous claim. And brethren, brothers and sisters, if this were not true, you and I are wasting our time here. If Jesus didn't make this claim and told, and told the people in, in synagogue that today in your presence this scripture is fulfilled, we would be wasting our time. But we know it is true. Christ is our Savior, the bearer of the news, the subject of the news, the one who has fulfilled the scripture. 
He manifested himself to the listeners in the time in synagogue. He reveals himself to us today by his spirit, through his word. And for those of us who have received the news, the news of his death, the news of his burial and resurrection, we are saved. And his spirit dwells in us. And as a church, if you are still trying to answer the question of why you are here, this is it. The good news has brought you here. Christ has brought you here today. There is no coincidence with him. Everything that is written in the scripture is true. It is carefully put there as we look at it in Leviticus 25, seeing it in in Isaiah 61, seeing Christ fulfilling it in Luke chapter 4, and you still wonder why you are here. The good news has brought you here. And if you are not yet a follower of Christ, this is where you want to ask yourself. Do I put my trust in Jesus? It is another day for you, a day of the Lord's favor. The good news is presented to you again today. I must remind you, Israel couldn't save themselves. They needed a savior, so you can't save yourself. Why not repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ? The good news is here. Christ is here. The scripture is fulfilled. You are saved. And if you are not, please accept. You see, having identified the anointed one, as we see in in verse 1 to 3, we begin to see what the anointed one is going to do. The ministry of Jesus is, is, is exposed and revealed to us with seven verbs in this text. He came to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and his vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide a complete reversal of their suffering and situation by giving them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. One other thing to note in the history of Israel is that our prophecy falls, you know, in the context of of prophecy, following Israel's, uh, God's people return from exile. So they have been in exile for more than 15 years, serving other people. And you trust me, when you are away from your hometown for 15 years, By the time you return, you may not be able to recognize what is there. For them, Jerusalem was in ruin. It wasn't what they envisaged. It wasn't what they had in mind. The temple is gone. Other people had taken over their living spaces. It wasn't the sight they want to see. And the harsh reality is that it's going to be a hard labor for them. So maybe they probably needed this encouraging word from Isaiah's prophecy. A word of reassuring good news. And we see God 
who continues to show up is making them, himself known to them again. That I'm going to do this. But we know that as, as, as those who are on this side of the border, that Jesus' mission is more than rebuilding of buildings and, 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 and you know, giving headdress to those who mourn or those who have lost their homes. His mission statement is more important than that. It is true, as I mentioned, that he cares for the poor. He cares for those who are, who are sick, those who are experiencing difficult times. Jesus cares. But he cares, for more, he cares for us more than our physical needs. So his mission is more than that. His mission is more than physical needs. His mission is spiritual. So when you look at the good news that we see in verse 1, it can only be the good news of salvation that Christ has brought for us. The good news of salvation, he has won on the cross for his people. The poor can only be those who are spiritually poor. Those who mourn can be those who are grieving over the spiritual condition of their heart. And the comfort they receive is the opposite of the wrath. His salvation. And then you look at later verse of later part of verse three, we see the result of Messiah's work in the life of his people. What will be said of the recipient of this salvation? They will be the oaks of righteousness. You see, a commentary says that the oak tree represents strength and beauty. The mighty oak tree draws from the soil it is planted in. And grows and grows until it is strong and rooted and immovable. The strong winds and storms no longer sway the mighty oak. For its root is as strong as the foundation it is planted in. That is what God has done for us. He has saved us to establish us, to establish you and I in himself. So that nothing can sway or move us. So that we can be grounded, firm, and steady in him. So that we depend on him from, for every nutrient that we need. If you want to flourish as a follower of Christ, you have to depend on Jesus for every source of nutrient you need. It is not by your works. It is by the work of the Spirit in you. Regardless of whatever ministry you are serving in, you have to find your joy and nutrient in God through his word. This is how you respond in joy regardless of whatever circumstances you are facing. This is why you, you come out every morning to serve regardless of the difficult week you've had. Because of the joy that you are getting from the one whom you are rooted in. This is what this, the oak of righteousness is. We are planted in God. You see, another interesting fact about the oak tree is that it's visible to all. God will plant his people as righteous tree to flourish and live for his glory. 
You see, this is another, another verse that, that helps us to see that Jesus didn't just come as a social worker. He, he's not just here because you need a job. That's, he, he provides. But that's, that's, that's not why he's here. Another reason we'll see is that so that his name will be glorified. Right? That's what we'll see in later part of verse 3. The anointed one saves his people. It is so that he may be glorified. God has planted you for the glory of his name. And the world will see. He wants to glorify himself through the testimony of your salvation as you share with your colleague and friends and family. As we are planted in him, deriving our source of joy in him, and as we join hands with one another as believers, as, as the oaks of righteousness, his desire is that we may be a faithful representative of him on earth. And the world may see us and glorify the Father. The point here, it's gospel proclamation. Though there is pain in, in this broken world, but there is a restorative hope. So I'll ask you again, are you, are you broken hearted? Are you enslaved or held captive by your sin? Let me remind you that Christ has brought freedom and liberty he has promised to make us an oak of righteousness so that you will glorify his name. The good news of hope and restoration is here. And that's our second point. The, the good news is a news of hope and restoration. Verse 4 to 9. You see, when God restores Israel to their land, they will rebuild their homes, the society and land. God will see to it that their material blessings... As God's people who return from exile to their land are restored. That is his promise. His promise is that there will be a rebuilding of the ancient ruins. A restoration of the city of Judah. A repair of the ruins surrounding city that have laid waste for many generations. And then there will be a flourishing time in which both the Jews and the Gentiles will dwell peacefully in one community. But it will be a city where God's people will have authority because strangers and foreigners will serve them. They shall be called priests and ministers of God. As I mentioned, the prophecy is a reassuring message to Israelites that they would enjoy their rights as firstborn again. This is the same, the same thing we read in Deuteronomy 21 verse 17. The right to the double portion is reserved for the firstborn and you read in Exodus 4.22, we see God declaring to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. And that God's promise is that when they come back, they will rebuild the city. As I mentioned, we know, we know Jesus' mission as the anointed one is just more than that. Because when he plants you as an oak in a place of ruin, you will flourish. You will flourish. You are planted here in a lane, not by coincidence. 
you are planted to be faithful ambassador of Christ. Knowing that you are rooted in him. Your source of nutrient is from him. You get the joy of, of your salvation is from him. What is holding you back to in flourishing? Why are you not telling others about the good news of Christ? Why does your colleague not know that you are a follower of Christ? Why is it not evident in the church as you devote your life to the service of God and his people? This is a call. If he plants you as an oak of righteousness, you will flourish. You see, when you look at verse 7 and 8, this is the heart of, of what we are looking at. That we are the blessing becomes relational again. The God of justice commits himself relationally with his people. Look at the word everlasting is repeated in, in verse 7 and verse 8. And what you are going to be noticing is that the everlasting joy of verse 7 is, flows directly from the everlasting covenant of verse 8. And this is so because the promise of God to his people is only guaranteed by God's character. Again, you are planted in him. Your everlasting joy, this may sound like a bad news since we are talking about good news. Your everlasting joy cannot come from material blessings. Your satisfaction cannot come from the fleeting things of this world because they are temporary. But only God, only God is our everlasting, who, has, who has made an everlasting covenant with us will produce everlasting joy in you. If you are pursuing joy apart from God, I'll promise you, doing so will leave you empty. Your joy that is not rooted in the joy that God has given is going to leave you wanting for more. It's going to leave you empty. Everlasting joy is a product of his everlasting character. And then we look at verse 10 to 11. I was hoping to get a different application from this text. There's a lot of application. But I think the, the passage itself gives us an application. And that's what we are seeing in verse 10 to 11. If you hear a good news, if, if, if someone calls you, you've been searching for a job or there is you know, something you've been hoping to God for, and you get a call today, and they say, hey, whatever you've been hoping for, it's confirmed. I, I, I trust me, you would, you would jump to joy. That's our natural instinct. We rejoice at the news that is good. Is that not true? I'm not sure anyone hears good news and is like, oh, this is not what I'm expecting. Good news triggers a certain emotion in us that causes us to rejoice. And I think that's the same response we are, the, 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 the prophecy is, is asking us to respond to. But the difference here is that the good news you are receiving is eternal one. It's not the good news that leaves you wanting for more. 
If your problem is, if you think that when you get that job that your problem is solved, trust me, after that there is another thing you are looking for. That's the natural state of man. We are pleased and relieved at the moment. It feels like all the problem of the world is resolved. But it takes a couple of hours and days for you to start seeking for another thing. At least that's true for me. But with God and the good news that Christ has brought, it is once and for all. It is the news that guarantees eternity. It is the news that whenever you remember it, you have hope for what is to come. It never leaves you wanting. There is never a time you open God's word that you are not satisfied. You see, we look at verse 10 to 11, we see that the author's tone changes. It it moves to a response. The response is to rejoice in the Lord and exalt his name. This is our application text. And that's why we should rejoice. We should rejoice and exalt him for what he has done. Because he has clothed us with the garment of salvation. Because he has covered us with a robe of righteousness. If you're looking for another reason to rejoice, that is it. We are today clothed with the righteousness of God. Yes, we are. It is done. So you can rejoice. Look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says. For our sake he made him to be seen who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you can rejoice. Rejoice because it is not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ that is credited to us. Rejoice, friends. Because when God sees you, he sees perfection. He sees sees a perfect one. Not because you are perfect. But because of the perfection of the anointed one. Because of Christ's death on the cross. And not only has God covered us with the righteousness of Christ, but he is also causing the righteousness to grow in us. Seeing who Jesus is and what he has done for us should cause you to worship. That's our source of joy. That's why we should rejoice. That's why we should worship. It is because of what Christ has done. There is one reason, again, and I'm going to close with this. You see, when you look at our text in, in chapter 1 to, in verse 1 to 3, and you look at Jesus, what Jesus read in, in Luke 4, 18 to 19, he read the, the prophecy to the point of the year of the Lord's favor. If you look at Luke chapter 4, 18 to 19. He read the prophecies to the point of the year of the Lord's favor, and he wrote up the scroll. But when you come back to Isaiah 61, you know there are more there, right? Isaiah 61, verse 2 says, you notice that after the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor, 
comes the, the, the day of vengeance. The day of vengeance is coming. I don't know if it's the preaching we hear often, but it's coming. But as believers, you can rejoice. You know why you can rejoice? Because Christ has taken the wrath. The vengeance of the Lord is placed on him for your sake. Brothers and sisters, the vengeance of God is coming, but Christ has canceled that bad news and given you good news. So you do not have any reason to fear. You rejoice because his wrath is poured on his son for your sake. We need not fear, but we should respond with joy. Again, this is another call for those who are not yet followers of Christ. The vengeance of God is coming. And if you have not put your faith and hope and trust in Christ, who died on the cross, the vengeance of the Lord is coming. But if you have put your faith in him, rejoice. Rejoice. Worship him. Go out, proclaim the good news of Jesus. Know that you are rooted in him. Your joy is in him. Your nutrient comes from him. And whatever life may throw at you, the most important news that has been committed to your hand is the good news. Go, tell others about him. Tell others about the joy of your salvation. Tell others about the testimony of your faith. Trusting that the anointed one will meet them. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God who continues to remind us of the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. He paid the death we could not pay for ourselves. He gave us life, new life in him. Planted us in himself, sinners like us. Yet we have received grace. We have received mercy. May we not shrink back in telling us about, others about this good news. The good news that guarantees eternal joy. The good news that guarantees eternal hope. The good news that guarantees satisfaction in Christ. May this, true, may this be true of Alain Church. We pray this in Jesus' name.